Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon and welcome to the Australian and New Zealand channel on the New Books Network. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which I live and pay my respect to elders past, present and future. My name is Bede Haynes and today I am having a discussion with Catherine Massam in relation to her book, called A Bridge Between Spanish Benedictine Missionary Women in Australia, published this year from ANU Press, which is part of the Australian National University in Canberra. Catherine is an Associate Professor of Church History at Pilgrim Theological College, which is, as I understand it, an initiative of the Uniting Church Synod of Victoria and Tasmania, and her research is focused on the history of Christianity, especially in Australia, and with particular interest in understandings of prayer and work. Amongst other scholarly writing, she's the author of Sacred Threads, Catholic Spirituality in Australia, and now this work. And Catherine also publishes lots of articles, which are probably available to lots of the listeners to this podcast on the usual places on the web. So, good afternoon, Catherine. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure, Bede. Thank you for your interest. Now, I'll begin, Catherine, by reading the back of the book so that people can get some understanding of what this book is about. It reads, A Bridge Between is the first account of the Benedictine women who worked at New Norcia and the first book-length exploration of 20th century life in a Western Australian mission town from the founding of a grand school intended for what were termed the natives or nativists in in Latin or Spanish, I think, through links to Mexico, Paraguay, Ireland, India, and Belgium, as well as to a house set up in the Kimberley and a network of villages in the north of Spain. It's a complex international history, and the bridge between gathers a powerful, fragmented story from the margins of the archive recalling the Aboriginal women who joined the community in the 50s and the compelling reunion of missionaries and former students in 2001. Now, Catherine, could you please let me know how you came to put this book together? Okay, so... I grew up in Perth, which is 130 kilometres down the road from New Norcia, um, which is a town that is still uh, alive and well in Western Australia, um, but hadn't uh, paid much attention to it um, until I started teaching. Uh, I had a semester teaching medieval history. I'm actually an Australianist by training but I was tutoring in medieval history and there was a program that um, had been set up by my predecessor in that job, who was a monk of New Norcia, 
where the medieval history students were um, to spend a weekend at the monastery and uh, inheriting that that role, um, I went uh, with the group and we um, spent time doing the the things that uh, had been part of the the monastic life um, through the decades there. It's got a foundation in the 19th century. Um, and we also were shown through the museum where there was a, um, a little display about uh, one of the Aboriginal families of the town, one of the First Nations um, people, the Willoway family, and a photo uh, in the last generation of that uh, then on display of uh, Sister Veronica who had joined the Benedictine Missionary Sisters um, which I'd never heard of but turned out to be uh, what was eventually a local diocesan congregation of religious women based uh, at Unorcia. And we were staying as a group in what was called the Old Convent, um, which, was, which was their convent. So from that um, initial um, you know, small pinprick of awareness in the the early 1990s. Uh, then in 1999, I was um, about to go on study leave from my, I had at that stage moved to teach Australian history at the University of Adelaide, had a study leave coming up and um, had some connections with New Norcia that had grown through um, further weekends along those lines uh, that had first begun for the medieval history students. We'd started to offer them for the community. I'd been in, uh, for the wider community. I'd been involved in those, and with this study leave coming up, um, I was keen to spend some time um, in Perth, and it seemed that um, to really get uh, to know the archives of New Norcia was a bit overdue. So I wrote to the then Abbot Placid Spirit and asked um, about that possibility and together the idea of doing some work on the Spanish sisters, these missionary women that Veronica had eventually joined, kind of took shape. And initially um, it wasn't clear whether there'd be enough material to support um, a full-length book. Um, and in some ways I think people might argue that uh, that perhaps there, there wasn't enough to support a full-length book. Um, however, um, 20 years later, here's, here's the, um, the account that pieces together fragments um, from archives um, at Unorcia in Madrid, um, sites in Belgium, fragments in uh, the London tablet. The, the material's very scattered, um, but the, the story, I think, is quite compelling and, and brings to light the, the reality of the community of women who were a really significant part of, of the town um, from the time the first group, to, group arrived in 1904 through until when they withdrew in 1975. Um, and they had an ongoing presence in Australia after that um, because although they moved their mother house to Madrid in 1975, they continued the work in the Kimberley that had started in the 30s. They continued that community um, through until 2008. So it's it's a story that um, 
spans decades, uh, brings together some of the most compelling themes in um, Australian historical writing, um, all in a crucible of um, religious commitment. So I, I found it a really privileged and, and compelling story to to be working on. Yes, well, that's great. I'd like to ask about New Norcia itself, mm-hmm. and it's referred to in the book as Australia's first and I think only monastic town. Mm-hmm. Could I ask you what a monastic town is? What makes something a monastic town as opposed to any old town? Yes, okay. Um, so it, it's called a monastic town because um, it has a monastic community at its heart. So the the town, um, as we know it today, is a collection of buildings on the Great Northern Highway um, outside Perth uh, that that traces its origins back to uh, two Spanish Benedictine monks who came to uh, the Swan River Colony with the colonial bishop John Brady in 1846, um, Rosendo Salvado and Joseph Serra had joined uh, a missionary group uh, from Rome after their own monastery had been closed down in Spain. Um, so there are kind of push factors and pull factors in that um, initial contact. They, they arrived as missionaries and were sent by the bishop to the central area and um, Sarah fairly quickly was involved in other administrative duties. Salvado too had had other calls on his time, but Salvado remained committed to the idea of a mission to the local Uud Noongar people um, for the next 54 years and um, acquired land um, in uh, generous land grant schemes from the government and at one stage was Western Australia's largest private landholder. Right. And at the core of that, uh, which was basically a series of, um, it was a, it was a, an agricultural enterprise um, with the monastic uh, community at its core. So the Benedictine life uh, involves a, ser- a series of um, daily offices, you know, daily prayer services uh, that that um, flow from uh, sunrise through to sunset. And um, although Salvador lived, uh, well, the life of a, an active missionary and church administrator and uh, had quite a um, significant impact in Europe too, he spent um, some extended periods there, uh, he's always clear in his writing that, that the um, combination of, of monastic and missionary life never undercuts the the fundamental commitment to living the Benedictine life, and and to you know the, the Benedictine life itself is one that involves balance between prayer and work, and uh, so the monastic town. Um, so it's called a monastic town because because it has this uh, community that continues to live um, according to the rule of Benedict, and and the land is uh, still private land it's still a um it's still a monastic settlement if you like right 
Are there many monks there today? I think at the moment there are eight or nine in town, so it's it's much smaller than uh, in its in its uh, heyday. Right, and the the sisters began their involvement with the town in the early nineteen hundreds, but they weren't the Benedictines at first. They were the they were called the Theresians. I think that's how mm. you pronounce it. Yeah, yeah. They were... Could you let me know how they came? to Eunorcia and how they ended up leaving Eunorcia and becoming the Benedict and how the Benedictines then came in. Sure. Okay. Um, so let's take one step back and talk about the precursor to the Theresian involvement. So in Salvador's day, in the day of the founder, he had always been uh, wary about having a community of religious women alongside the monks in town. He said at one point in one letter this needed to be thought about thrice three times and although there were um, Benedictine nuns in Spain who were keen to join his mission, he always mm. refused the offers um, and had um, he was also quite reluctant to set up a, um, a formal uh, school and orphanage for girls. He, initially he was um, collaborating with the Sisters of Mercy in Perth. Um, but then the local people, one of the widowed fathers, told him that they had to stop, that he needed to um, not send the girls away to the country of their enemies, um, that he needed to provide for them in town. And so uh, a small um, whitewashed hut like others that were being built was set aside for um, uh, girls who, who were um, going to school or who needed, you know, who were outside their families or whose families were otherwise disrupted. And in Salvador's day, the care of that house, what the locals called the girls' house, what even in Salvador's day was called St Joseph's Native School and Orphanage, the care of that institution was in the hands of um, a lay brother uh, as a superintendent and then Aboriginal matrons, um, probably widowed uh, Aboriginal women who also lived in and looked after that um, establishment. This seemed to Salvado to be a very satisfactory arrangement, um, but when he, he died in 1900 and was replaced by um, Fulgensis Torres, who um, came to New Norcia having known Salvado in Spain but not having any experience of the mission, Torres um, found this arrangement um, quite shocking and made, uh, made it one of his priorities to secure a group of um, women religious, a group of nuns, sisters, to, to run St Joseph's. He'd been a monk of Montserrat in Barcelona and also in Barcelona um, there was this new... Um, quite innovative foundation of women, the Company of St. Teresa of Jesus, who were committed to, um, to providing missionary teachers. So it seemed ideal and he contacted um, their superior and you know, they had houses in, um, in South America, uh, in Central America, in Mexico, uh, which meant that in the Mexican houses they had women who could speak English um, so it seemed a, um, a good fit and Torres was expecting that they would send some of the uh, English speakers from Mexico. 
enough to run a school that would educate uh, the local um, Aboriginal girls but also um, would cater for the families of the um, nearby farming uh, settlers the, and that the farming land was expanding um, in the 20th century uh, more than it had in the 19th. Anyway, so the Theresians arrived in 1904 but there'd been a misunderstanding. They'd sent only one English speaker um, which meant uh, that the idea of running an English-speaking school was uh, doubtful. Things were quite rocky from the start. Um, and it was also a very significant transition for St Joseph's um, to move from the Aboriginal matrons and the lay brother to this new group. It was part of several shifts that Torres was making. Um, but he found himself without an English-speaking congregation, um, but with this grand new school. It, it was a really, um, you can still see it today, the, the buildings of St Gertrude's and its fairy tale towers are really um, significant landmarks in the town. Um, and at the time, it was uh, a much more elaborate school building than anything you might find in Perth, just about. Um, so he had this grand establishment and he persuaded the Sisters of St Joseph, Mary McKillop's group, to come as a temporary measure um, in 1908. In initially they were going to come, I think, for a year uh, while the Theresians learned enough English. Um, and, and Torres intended that the, um, it would be an integrated school with the First Nations girls and the daughters of the colonial families both being taught together. Um, this didn't really get off the ground, um, partly because the Aboriginal families didn't support the idea, um, partly because Torres expected the Theresian sisters and the Aboriginal girls living at St Joseph's to do the laundry for the English-speaking sisters of St Joseph and the first white students um, who came to the new school at St Gertrude's. And, and that expectation about washing for this other community really brought tensions to a head. So it had been rocky because of the lack of English. There, there were various um, arrangements made to try and deal with that. Um, but then the expectation that the Theresian community and the um, St Joseph's girls would would wash was really the, um, well, it, it was the, um, the straw that broke the camel's back, I suppose. And there was a standoff between, um, so they, they told the abbot that this was not on. He was very shocked that they would disobey in this way. Um, and there was a standoff that went on between the Theresian leadership in Barcelona and the abbot at Nunorcia that played out over a couple of years, really, um, with tension about who had the authority to close the community and how the, um, the women would be recalled um, if that happened. That's a whole other story in itself, um, and gradually, while the Theresians were being recalled to Spain um, in twos and threes, one of the lay sisters, um, Maria Arispe, um, 
is very clear uh, both in her dealings with the abbot and um, with the people, the Aboriginal people, that, that she's committed to stay at New Norcia. Um, she's in a slightly different situation from the other Theresians because her commitment to them had been temporary. She, she'd taken first vows um, but they'd expired in July 1909 and then instead of renewing her vows as a Theresian, she'd made a separate private commitment as a Benedictine oblate. So technically um, she, she had um, ceased to be a religious sister but as an ordinary Catholic woman she made a private commitment to live according to the rule of Benedict in an agreement with the abbot on the understanding that she'd continued to do the work at St Joseph's. So she's part of the Theresian community um, while it's in this rocky stage in 1909. Um, but when in uh, 1910 the telegram comes uh, from Torres, who at that stage is in Rome, saying the sisters are to leave New Norcia, um, Torres knew uh, that Maria was probably going to ignore that because she was no longer a Theresian. And indeed, she stayed. And um, for a few years, uh, a couple of years, St Joseph's uh, continues with her as the superintendent, um, probably other Aboriginal matrons involved. At least there are photos that show them um, very much part of the community in these years and good connections with the Sisters of St Joseph at St Gertrude's who supply someone to teach uh, the Aboriginal girls at, at St Joseph's as well as at St Gertrude's, and Maria as an oblate, a Benedictine oblate, but still called Sister Maria. And then gradually others begin to join her, um, first an Irish woman, an apostolic Carmelite sister who'd spent decades in India, um, Elias Devine um, arrives in Easter 2012, age 75. She's um, well-equipped to take over um, the running of St Joseph's as a school. And then in 2012, uh, sorry, in, in 1912 uh, and 1915, two other former Theresians return. They come back not as sisters, but to make the same commitment that Maria has made as oblates. So first Consuela Batiz and then Teresa Rocca. And they're a, they're a small community of four running this um, school for about uh, 20 uh, young um, First Nations women. And then in 1918, after uh, Consuelo has left town in a that's it, a very interesting story in itself. Um, she leaves in at uh, the end of 1917. In 1918, the third abbot who has succeeded Torres in 1916, um, Abbot Catalan, the third abbot, starts recruiting for this very informal community in Spain um, from uh, 1918. And in, in the 1920s, uh, the first of a series of young women from the villages around Borgos, north of Madrid, start to respond. And they, um, they join this very informal community. So from the perspectives of the administrators of the mission at Ninosia, the major advantage of the new community was that it was responsible to the mission itself. It, it, didn't, it wasn't a community of 
women religious that had uh, ties to a separate structure of authority as the Theresians had. Um, they're um, entirely um, answerable to the abbot. And they were called the Benedictine Oblate Sisters of Nunosia, um, but there was no formal status to, to back up that title. Um, and I think, as the book shows, that that was a particular problem if anyone ever thought to question why the abbot had the right to direct them to do something. Most of the time that wasn't an issue, but from the 1930s when they opened a house in the Kimberley, um, the need for some more recognisable structure became very clear. And then he start, Catalan starts to work towards that. Sorry, that's quite a long answer, I hope. Uh, that's <laughs> um, good. There's some, some points I want to pick up on in the ask and drill down a little bit into some of that. One, one, one thing the book draws out very well is first of all, it's a great text in in terms of words, but also in terms of images and photographs, and you get a, a real sense of the town. And as you were explaining, the architecture of the buildings, and one thing these photographs draw out is there seems is the divide between the, the the Spanish women who are the become the Benedictines, and they always seem to be or not for at least for I would say maybe until the nineteen fifties seem to be, in a sense, disabled because they don't have a large community of fluent English speakers and that almost means they get treated as as a lower class of religious within, especially between the, the nuns who ran St. Gertrude's, the Saint, the Josephites. And also, another, and I want you to comment on this if you could, the, the book in, that, in this way brings out divisions and there's geographic divisions the two where the difference between the two schoolhouses themselves where they're situated and also the laundry itself seems to provide a divide but i think there's one section in the book where you actually comment on the clotheslines almost making a divide and the idea of having to do laundry for other people what was that was that a psychological hurdle that the benedictine nuns really did not want to have to try and get over. Mm. I, I think uh, the Benedictine community took it in stride, um, but, it, but it, was, it was a real problem for the Theresians who had you know, come with the expectation that they would run the school, um, not, that they would, not that they would just do the, the manual work. And, and that, that divide between... Um, between the, the manual work or the, or the missionary practicality and, and the monastic work um, of the Benedictine monks themselves um, or of uh, you know, a more contemplative style of life, um, I think does run through the, the, the history of the, the community too. And you're right to pick up on the the English language issue. Um, you know, the the young men from Spain who were coming to join the monastery were um, sometimes sent through the United States so that they'd get uh, some familiarity with English. They they were certainly um, if they were training to be priests rather than um, lay brothers. There was quite a lot of education involved and an expectation that they'd need to be able to function in English. 
but the young women who came to join the sisters, um, all, that, all that they needed was to be able to work hard and pray hard. Um, so there, there was um, no, well, there was, there was some attention given to their capacity in English, but it, it involved sitting in on classes with the, the girls at St Gertrude's um, up until the 1940s and then in the late 40s some of them um, spent time in Perth with the Sisters of Mercy and did, did learn English um, more effectively and indeed trained as teachers. But for the, the women who came in the 20s and 30s um, who became part of the leadership in the 50s and 60s, that, that sense of not being properly fluent in English was um, was something they were very conscious of and 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 a burden in um, in their dealing with you know, other other communities. I'm not sure. Um, well, yeah, certainly that that sense of of not being on an equal footing because they couldn't communicate effectively was part of it. And then their habit, the, what they wore, um, also set them apart a little bit. Um, they they um, had the heavy. Um, black serge dresses and the the starched collars and the veil um, but unlike other communities that came from Europe they they didn't they didn't have a an all-enclosing um, quaff that that covered the neck and and some of them felt that they weren't thought of as proper sisters because you know their necks were exposed um, the idea of, of working in the Kimberley with um, not just the starched collar, but also the um, the, the full headpiece. Um, you know, there were. It would have been like working in an oven. You know, your own portable oven. Um, and the communities that tried that uh, were pleased to see it disappear. But the the sense that they were that their status was somehow confused um, did did kind of flow through. Um, the early years especially. Mm. Yes, I was going to say with one of the, I don't know how to, I'll come to this question this way. I'll, the book itself is called A Bridge Between mm -hmm. and the cover of the book has this striking image of about nine or so sisters in their habits looking very nunnish, standing on a railway bridge against what looks to be a hot Australian afternoon with bright sun and a river beneath and that in itself, that image in itself just says so much because of the, the way they're dressed and the, the background and also this notion that they've, there's they've, this whole community, the, the portrait you paint in this book is a series to me of, of bridges between spaces, between Spain and Australia, between the southeast of the southwest of Western Australia near Perth, up on, up to the Kimberley in the north, all these divides, language divides, all the, all these different ways of bridging things. And first of all, I'd like you to comment on on that the the name of the book and the selection of that image to begin mm. with, if you could. Yeah. For a long time, um, the working title of the book was just between, um, because. So often their sisters seem to fall between categories. Um, you know, they were um, they were Spanish, not Anglo-Saxon, not uh, Noongar people. Um, you know, so as Mediterranean people, they were 
you know, in this between category, not white in the racial hierarchies of Australia, um, not Indigenous uh, like the people they were working with. Um, they were Catholic, not Protestant in um, what was you know, a Protestant English-speaking colony. Um, they were not monks. You know, they were somehow between the monastic and the missionary, you know, the tension around what kind of life they were to lead. They were between the, the children they were caring for and the, the families that those children belonged to. They were between the monastery and the government, um, sometimes navigating those policies of separation. Um, yeah, and they, they were vowed to virginity, or well, they vowed to the monastic promises, which included a life of chastity. And they, they were also um, surrogate mothers, you know, in charge of this um, complex orphanage um, mm. school. So between seemed like a way to sum them up. Um, yes. But there are a couple of other good books that, that already have that title. And in a way it was the, 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 the photograph that got me thinking about um, the reality that this community also bridges those divides. So although they themselves fall between the categories, the fact that they uh, are in town doing the work they do, navigating all of those divides makes them in themselves um, some kind of bridge um, between the categories. And the, the image, um, which is actually taken on a, a bridge at the back of the monastery uh, that, that crosses over from uh, what used to be the orchard to the, um, to the paddock beyond, um, where there was a, um, an Aboriginal campsite, the, the fact that you know, there's no railing on the bridge, that they're um, quite high above the water, that they're standing there um, for the purpose of having their photo taken, um, but in this quite peculiar location, um, it is. It also says something about uh, the the quirky and um, risky kind of relationship that 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 they had with um, the world that was around them, and for all that they looked like. Uh, standard sisters, the, the close-up look at that image, you know, you, you can see, I think, um, individual qualities and, and, and some of the, the, the characters of, of each of those women um, in the early 30s that, that also points to um, something of the complexity of the community that they were, um, that they were creating at that stage. It was, it was still being formed, really. Yes, I think that's that, I mean, that's one thing I really appreciated because the, the image on the front of the book is quite a high resolution. And when you have that photograph within the book itself, you go to some trouble to comment on the individuals within that photo. And then I was I kept reading that section, flipping back to the front, and you can really actually see into the faces of these women and you comment on how they're some of them are holding their hands and, and some of them have the, their hands behind their sort of scapulas scapulas that they're wearing it was oh that was actually almost moving to read that section of the book it was you really that that drew you into these women these weren't just 
These aren't just nuns. These are people. Mm. Yes, I'm. I'm glad that came across. I mean, when when I first found the photo, um, it was there wasn't anyone who could tell me the names of all of those women. So part of the project has been gradually to get to know um, whose face and you know belongs to what name, and and just being able to. Um, bring them back into focus as individuals um, whose stories um, are compelling and um, worth remembering. That, that, that's that been an important part of the project for me too. Oh, good. Now, one, I was going to ask you to comment on another section, and it's a part of Australian history that I think, at least in my experiences of being an Australian, it's quite, it's not that commonly spoken of, but the in Western Australia, as I understand it, there was, a, there, was, there was legislation and they had a person appointed as the Aboriginal protector. I think they were called something like that. And they looked and their job was to take, well, they could essentially do order First Nation children around the place. And it, there almost seemed to be a, a, a symbiotic relationship between a government having a policy where they had complete control over this group of people within the society and the sisters themselves who wanted to establish a mission in that area. So the that, that seemed to accommodate the government policy and also assist the sisters in providing what they thought were good works. Can you comment on how those two, they, in one sense they work together, but in another sense it seems quite not what you would expect of, of, of a, a Christian feeling because they're not actually, the the idea isn't to have to lord it over people, which these laws seem to enable someone to do. Now the nuns don't seem to have done this, but it just seems to be a strange relationship. Mm. Yes, and I, I think one of the things that the um, the ongoing story of reconciliation at Nunosia, um is trying to come to terms with is is the role of the church in. Um, enabling the the policies of um, government coercion and, well, it was called protection, but it was actually a, a strong system of surveillance and intrusion into um, Aboriginal families. Um, and it, it's a system that, that um, is uh, around the country that at different points each of the Australian states uh, passes uh, a variation of the Aboriginal Protection Act, and in Australia, um, in Western Australia, um, the 1905 Act, just after the Theresians arrive, builds on some 19th century legislation, um, and then it, there's another. It's tightened again in 1911, and again in 1936, and the the Chief Protector um, in this legislation is becomes the legal guardian of um, all Aboriginal children, uh, regardless of their family circumstances. So first uh, up until the age of 16 and then in 1936 up until the age of 21. Um, and the role of uh, various church institutions, not only um, New Norcia, um, the role of those institutions in um, enabling the the legislation to to um, be acted on um, 
is interesting to explore. Um, there were, as well as the, the missions, um, the Chief Protector A.O. Neville uh, preferred to send people to, um, to, to government-run um, Aboriginal reserves and institutions and Moore River just down the road from New Norcia is probably one of the um, ones that's better known. You know, the, the film Rabbit Proof Fence brought that into some um, focus. Um, so um, the, the, the role of the sisters and their institution in this, I think, is one of the instances of being, being between. Um, so on the one hand, St Joseph's existed because of the disruption to First Nations families, um, because of the coercive government policies of removal of children from family. But it was also a Noongar place, a, you know, an Indigenous place, a place where, where some of the women who grew up there insist that, that we need to remember too that, you know, in their phrase, there was love in this home. So it's a place of paradox and um, the, I, I've been clear in the book that the story I'm, I'm telling there focuses on the community of the Benedictine sisters. It doesn't pretend to tell the story of the, um, the girls who grew up in care or what the institution as an institution was like. But it's also really, it, I mean, clearly it's difficult to separate the two. Um, so that, that St Joseph's was part of a network of compulsion and also a place where families could send the kids themselves if the department was getting too active in the area is, is part of the paradox. Um, so there, there are some compelling letters, um, like one from a, um, a mother in Tujay in a neighbouring town late in the 1930s asking for her daughter to be given a place at New Norcia so that the chief protector won't take her further away. Um, and there are stories about families um, placing their, their children at the mission and for some periods, uh, you know, either if welfare is too active or if there's, um, or if, if that's a kind of helpful circuit breaker, um, or you know, sometimes people say, you know, over the summer so that the kids could go on holiday to the coast with the sisters and then when things eased up or um, families were in a better situation um, or whatever, then the children would be removed. Um, and there are complaints sometimes from uh, the sisters and the monastic authorities about how um, the children, you know, the, the families are, are taking the kids. You know that they'd, they'd be much better off if they stayed and completed their education. But um, the parents don't appreciate the education, and you know, promising students leave, and and this is something that um, perplexes perplexes the monastic authorities, um, the mission authorities, as time goes on. Um, so it's. Certainly, there, there, there are also, I should say, as well as those stories about children being placed by families, there are also stories about um, children who run away to family who are returned by the police and, and girls who are classified as wards of the state um, who are on record as late as the 
60s and 70s saying, you know, nobody cares, anyone can do anything to us. And th those are horrifying stories. Um, uh, they, they horrified the, um, the sisters who heard them at the time and they, they continue to haunt the, um, the sisters who are trying to come to terms with them now. Um, so you're right to point to the, the ways in which the institution was complicit with the policies um, and I think there's also a story to be told about the way in which the um, First Nations families and the sisters themselves had a sense of forging something different, something that, that was separate to what they might have got at, at Moore River or, um, you know, that, that, that was uh, an education or a, a way of being um, in the world, especially from the 1940s onwards, I think, um, that, that aimed to make sure that the, the girls who went to school there you know, could be proud of, of um, the way things had been done. I mean, that, that's that's this is hugely. This deserves a, a much longer conversation, and it's a it's an area no, where not. we need Aboriginal voices. Really, I think um, the book has some. Um, the, but the book is very worth reading on this for anyone for those listening to to pick it up on these all, all the points Catherine's been speaking of are dealt in much greater depth in the book, and it's it's and and very well as well. They're worth reading and. I wanted to ask you, Catherine, it's, it's a similar, almost in a similar vein, the recruits who became the Benedictines appeared to be recruited from a region of towns in the north, north of Madrid, in the north of Spain. And there's some photographs in the book of the novices, of, or I'm not sure if they're called novices or postulants or something or other, coming over from these parts of Spain probably prior to the 1950s. And they're so young. These are girls basically, and it seems like there they are. You're living in Spain in, in the mid early to mid-20th century. You pack up and you end up in a country town in Western Australia, potentially for the rest of your life. Mm, yes. How on earth did that happen? <laughs> um, well, they were young. Um, most of them were teenagers. And as you say, most of them come from farming villages, uh, to the northwest of Madrid, connected to an urban centre, Borgos, and the villages around it. Um, and the the recruiting is a really interesting story. Um, so, after the small community of four, the former Theresians plus Elias the Carmelite um, uh, is kind of stable in in the. Uh, early 1920s, the abbot starts to pay attention to how he might find um, more members of this group. And the monastery, the monks have been recruiting from Spain always. You know, they've had strong links. And um, it's also including this town of Borgos, where there was a, um, a particular parish priest who was a strong contact of Salvado. And he, um, by the 1920s, he's the chaplain at a community of Cistercian women, um, famous Cistercian community, Santa Maria Real at Las Huelcas, um, a foundation that um, used to allow only noble women. 
um, they they also had domestic workers. And when word went out that New Norcia was looking for women as well as men to join the community, um, it was a fairly natural thing for some of these domestic workers at Las Huelgas to be you know, directed to conversations at the with the abbot. Um, so several of the sisters had spent time uh, at that community. Um, there's another community at one of the villages, Palacio de Benabere, um, mm. and uh, then the, the Benedictines also in Borgos, uh, the community at um, San Jose. They also have links. And um, so several of the sisters come to New Norcia after some contact with one of those communities um, however, it, it wasn't um, simply the community. It was also that the abbot, Abbot Catalan, would visit and interview um, the young women. And in, in, the, um, in the visit that leads to the photo that you're talking about of the, the group of 12 on the Toscana, um, he spent a year travelling uh, traveling the villages and had intended to to recruit six, but actually ends up with a group of twelve plus six young men, also for the monastery. So it's this large group of eighteen travelling um, when shipping still disrupted after the Second World War. Um, so it's a major enterprise to get them home, at, well, to get them to New Norcia. Um, and yes, as I say, so he's interviewing people who've, who've been recommended by these communities. He's also interviewing people he knows through uh, the network of parishes and especially some villages where there's already family ties to New Norcia. There's a, there's a network of families. Um, so sisters who encourage brothers to join the monastery, aunts who encourage their nieces to follow them, um, Sisters who encourage sisters, although it's interesting that as in family sisters, blood sisters, um, it's interesting that, that that never quite comes off. There are several um, occasions when sisters from the same family nearly make the journey, but it, it doesn't happen. But nieces and cousins, yes, and neighbours and um, and brothers who follow sisters, but not sisters as who follow mm. sisters. Um, and a couple of very compelling stories about Catalan's visit to, to particular villages where, you know, the, what he calls the New Norcia families come to see him and uh, he's, he's looking for the next generation of, of young women and young men who, who might join. Um, and one particularly, um, there's a, there's a, he doesn't often write with the level of um, personal detail that he offers in one letter to uh, one of the women, Sister Hildegard, who's in the Kimberley. But he writes to her in 1949 telling her about a village to, uh, a visit to her village, Tapia, um, where her niece, Visitation, is one of the young women who's keen to join. Um, but Visitation's mother, Hildegard's sister, is, uh, doesn't think this is a very good idea at all. Um, and instead of going to greet the abbot, she leaves the village, comes back late, gives the abbot a piece of her mind, um, and, and Catalan is recounting this kind of blow by blow. Um, when I came across this letter in the archive, 
I was at a visitation who had had a long career in the Kimberley, um, was at that stage back in Madrid, and I said to her, you know, do you know that he wrote to Hildegard all about you and, and this um, tense encounter? And she, you know, I was telling her this happened and this happened and, you know, then your father said and then your little sister and then you, and she said, yes, yes, you don't, you don't need to tell me. I was there. I remember. So it was still very mm-hmm. vivid. Um, and the drama of, of the recruiting and the departure um, remained a key part of, of uh, how these sisters explained themselves, you know, that they were women who had made this long journey um, in order to do this missionary work um, and for those where that was a good fit, the the um, the risk of of that journey was still um, something that they were keen to talk about. Yes, and can I ask? There seems to have been successes you've just explained in northern Spain in recruits, mm. but not so much locally. There's one I think it's Sister Veronica who writes the Ford, and I think she might have been a local. Mm. And, First Nation recruit to the order, but there didn't seem there were a couple of local non First Nation people, but they, but I think they both they left. And why why was there a, a, a sort of divergence between Spanish recruits and local recruits? Mm. Um, there there were there was a uh, there were local vocations, as you've said, um, two from local families. So Veronica Willoway joined and. Um, Cecilia Farrell, who'd also been a student at St. Joseph's, um, she joined. Um, and then there were three Anglo-Australians from Perth. And, yes, two left. One um, remained and, until the sisters uh, moved their mother house to Madrid. So Pius Monaghan, Sister Anne, um, then joined a different community, remained very committed to working with Aboriginal people, and, and was part of the um, the reunion that starts this book, the 2000 and, 2001 reunion. Yes. Um, uh, Anne Moynihan was uh, was a key figure in in the work towards that, as well as the occasion itself. So there were some local vocations, but you were you're right; they, they were very few. Um, and. Anne's experience, Anne Moynihan's experience as an uh, English-speaking Irish-Australian um, was uh, probably typical of what people would have found, uh, that, that it, was a, it was a Spanish community. And so when she joined, the notices on the notice boards were in Spanish, not English. Um, this was in 1958, she had no Spanish. She wasn't used to olive oil on the food. She It, it was a whole cultural um, bridge that, that she had to walk down because she wanted to do this work. Um, she, she had grown up in East Perth, was interested in, had friends among Aboriginal Australians, wanted to do that kind of work, didn't want to um, leave Western Australia. And and so New Norcia um you seemed the logical place for her but for most um 
young Australian women growing up in Perth, um, especially before Vatican II, the the idea of joining, uh, you, you generally joined the congregation that you'd been to school with or that you had some other kind of connection with. And Eunice's right. isolation really worked against that, as well as probably the, the work with Aboriginal people that, that wasn't um, as much of a priority for um in the vocation literature, it didn't come across as a priority as much as keeping the Catholic school system going. You know that that um, that was where um, vocations were fairly firmly directed. Yes, and could, we have to finish up relatively soon, so I'd like to ask a few more, a couple more questions. Um, I'd like you to comment on how the mission ended with the most of the nuns returning to Spain. Mm-hmm. And also, was there a sense that when it did end, the sisters hadn't made a firm enough connection to Australia to remain in Australia, but were more attracted to returning back to Spain, even though they may not have been there for many decades? Mm. Um, yes. So in the early 70s uh, the sisters established a childcare centre in Girawin in the northern suburbs of Perth um, with the idea that this would be a new kind of enterprise and that the Australian sisters um, would would take charge of this that this would be another kind of um, outreach and that the work at New Norcia um, needed to change that the the whole idea of institutional care for um, uh, for children was moving much more towards group homes. There was a series of um, significant meetings at New Norcia um, where there were two things happening at once. Really, one was that there might be group homes established at New Norcia that Aboriginal um, women would oversee with the sisters alongside as um, kind of aunt and grandparent sorts of figures Um, and then a conversation about whether there was indeed still a role for for the kinds of um, accommodation and um, provisions that uh, New Norcia had traditionally uh, provided and both of those things were um, inching forward when um, in a series of events, the the superior at the time, Maria Cedad, who's indeed one of the people standing on the bridge in 1930, um, mm-hmm. Maria really lost faith in... <clears throat> In the Australian, excuse me, in the Australian part of the enterprise, um, the uh, two of the Australian sisters left. She decided that there wasn't any hope of recruiting anyone else. Um, Sister Pius, later Anne, um, was trying to run Gurawin single-handed and uh, not literally, but she was under a lot of pressure. Um, the the child welfare department saw her as someone who had great capacity but also saw there was no one um, who could um, swing in behind her and the 
the leadership at the monastery also changed and the first non-Spanish abbot was elected. And Maria found that really difficult to deal with too, the sense that um, that the whole um, Spanish feel of the town was, was um, slipping away from her. So she... Um, moved uh, fairly strongly to um, close New Norcia and um, move that move the mother house to to Spain um, but she kept uh, the Kimberley house open and and there's a real puzzle I think about why the Giroin community also had to close I think um, that a different a different plan might have evolved there, but it didn't. Right. Um, so, yes, they, they moved uh, with a sense of um, being out of place as, as things were shifting and, and because of some um, – because of the, the internal tensions between the English speakers and the Spanish speakers even within the community. Right. Okay. Well, we don't have to – tie things up here i wouldn't mm-hmm. i'm gonna ask you in a second what you're working on next but i would recommend this book to anyone who is at all interested in history australian history religious history the 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 way in which religious communities work especially within the catholic church and the complicated systems of being a, an order and what a nun is and what a nun isn't and all and the, the ways in which it all the hierarchy works it, it is abs- fascinating and the book is wonderfully illustrated with just photographs that tell these stories so visually that complement the writing. And it really is worth reading. And Catherine, could you let us know what you are working on now? Uh, well, two things primarily. Um, one is a, an account of the Presentation Sisters in Victoria for the years uh, after um, the Vatican Council. So that's a um, that's a project that I hope hope will come to completion um, in the first part of next year, and then uh, in the longer term, I'm interested in worker cooperatives and and the faith story that inspires those. So not only um, strands of of Catholic social teaching, but also Unitarian and nonconformist interests, um, right, and how economic theory and social justice and theology um, come together. So it sort of flows on from an interest in monastic communities and um, people who are committed to prayer and work um, but pushes on um, into the, um, the economic side of things in ways I'm interested in understanding. And does that still have a, a, a modern story to tell in Australia or is that all historic, the social aspect of nonconformist groups and things like that? Uh, um, no, it certainly it ha- has an ongoing story and uh, I think social enterprises and new ways of thinking about how work is organised, um, I, I think 2020 has shown us that that's a, it's a really pressing topic and and there are lots of people doing good thinking about what that might mean so i'm interested in um both dimensions both the um both reclaiming the memory of of where that came from and um 
trying to answer some questions about how about how participation um, needs to be uh, an economic value as well as a as well as a political one. I think um, right. that there's a, yeah. a way in which the um, the role of the shared, the collaborative structures, um, we take them, we, we assume that democracy is a good thing politically, but, but we're, we're not uh, so aware of that when we're thinking about um, business. But I think some of the models suggest that we, we'd do well to remember that. Yes. Oh, well, that sounds, no, that sounds, um, well, that sounds great. Yes. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. We didn't have longer today to talk about your book because it's you have only really touched on the main themes, but there is so much. I mean, that's probably a good thing. People can go and read it now. <laughs> There's no spoilers here, but it's um, it really is worth reading. And I'd like to congratulate you on it. I found it very uh, enjoyable read, not only interesting and informative, but actually enjoyable. It really told a story and brought these people alive. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm very glad to hear that. Thank you for your time today, Catherine. And that completes this edition of the New Books Network, Australian and New Zealand Studies. And I'd like to thank Catherine Massim and her book, A Bridge Between, for coming on and having a conversation with us. Thank you very much. Thank you.